All right, let's kick it off. Sick. Chris, what's going on? What's going on, man? How are you? What's going good. on, boys? Thanks for coming through. It's good no we problem. can fit this in. It was a good trade, a, a car space in the city for a feat. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what are you doing? Come on the podcast. Like, you got a car bay? I was like, I can fucking <laughs> Don't ask for much, man. That's, that's pretty yeah, good. It's like, that's probably the least uh, in-depth rider I've ever heard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just helped a lot. I had so much. I had like, I guess like six different appointments of things to do today. Like a bunch of them were in the city. I was meant to get, I was meant to go get this stencil done in my hair by this like crazy um, hairdresser here. But then he fell down the stairs this morning. I had to go to hospital. <laughs> was yeah. that during your haircut? No, it happened um, just before I was about to leave. I got the message and I was like, oh, shit. Is he all right? Uh, he's, he cracked a few things. Like he had to go to the hospital. Like he was, like heard some bone things going on. Oh, so my God. I think, I think it'll be all right. But who knows? Dude. I've had my fair share of those too. So yeah, yeah. I've I know seen the many times <laughs> in a wheelchair and like. Yeah. I think I had like a year and a half total wheelchair situation. Yeah. What did you do? Three different injuries. One was a, a reef gash or sort of like i actually had a i hit a reef not even that hard um but i had a bunch of these like barnacles that are like as big as your thumb and uh one of them went three quarters of an inch into my heel and i hit it hard enough that it like shattered inside my foot oh, i got to go on a tour in asia the next day and then i just went to my local gp because i just happened to be in sydney like in the city where my folks are where i grew up and I went there and he's like, you should have gone to an emergency. Like, I'll see what I can do with this. And um, the nurse goes to start stitching it up. And then a different doctor comes in and says, oh, hang on a minute. And like pulls it right open. And there's all this shell and like shit all like shattered inside it. So they were going to seal it up and then send me on the plane to Asia the next day. I would have got staph infection, maybe lost my leg, whatever. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. yeah those barnacles are really bad. They yeah. get infected real easy. 100%. Yeah. Um, but that all worked out fine. And then... Uh, Fell top to bottom on a, a big hurricane swell in um, a Newport wedge in California. Broke my heel, flew to Alaska the next day, got it all fixed up there. Wheelchair. I went to the Boar Tide, you know, the longest wave in the world yeah. in Alaska. That Boar Tide, I was there, like, meant to surf it. And then I was, like, in a moon boot, oh like, <laughs> as of the day before. <laughs> and then the other one, I was in the Dominican Republic for um, Holy Ship and they started taking over the Hard Rock Hotel there. And, uh, I just went and washed my feet in the pool and then walked back out through like a little um, patch of dirt next to the garden, next to the footpath. And someone had like smashed a glass in there and it just like sliced my whole foot open, blood all over the footpath. And um, I went to the medics there and I couldn't believe this, but they, I was like, hey, foot uh, stitches, you got some? And they're like, no, we don't. <laughs> they're doing a 3,000 person pool party and didn't think to bring stitches. Holy shit. Yeah. So then I had to go to a casino because casinos always have medics because yeah. they want to patch people up, send them back to the pokies, you know? <laughs> so I went to casino over there and then like these ladies are just like laughing, like shoving in the local and, and stitching it up. And I remember I had this really weird epiphany. I don't know why I'm remembering this now, but when they're like, cause you know, I, I find the local hurts more than anything else. Mm -hmm. It's just, they go so much further than any of the stitches, or the scalpels or whatever. And it's always right next to the wound as well. Like they're just like, yep, just yeah. stabbing where the nerves are raw. Exactly. Um, and I just remember them stabbing my foot like that and me thinking, man, women have got it really hard. Like they have to give birth. Like this is just my heel. Imagine <laughs> what giving birth. I remember just having this like big, 
empathy wave, like as I'm there getting stitched up. So much. Yeah, (laughs) these two female like doctors and nurses are just like shoving this shit in my feet. I'm like, Dan, you guys have got a lot worse than us. (laughs) (laughs) I got glassed once. Oh uh, shit! Split my whole face open down here, and they had to jam the needle in my eye. Yeah, and um, I think ever since that experience. I've been fine with locals because I always remember that. It's like, it can't be as bad as that. Yeah. Was, so we're just watching a needle come to you towards you. That eye. was because I don't like, I don't know about you guys, but anything to do with my eyes and my teeth, like I get really weirded out about. Yeah. Like, if I was to have a fucked up dream, it would be all my teeth fucking falling out. Yeah, or, like, razor blade on your eyeballs. Exactly. Yeah. So the eyes freak me out. Is that like that. a Perth thing? I know Payoff got glassed in the yeah, face years yeah. ago too. Same kind of thing, straight over the eye. Yep. Yeah. It's just Perth things. <laughs> the only eye thing I had like that was. When I was really young, like I think not even a teenager yet, and I had like a very early Windows computer, an IBM, and I was at the back of it, like crawled under the desk in like a little crawl space, little kid size space only. And I was trying to get these speakers working. I couldn't work it. And I was just hitting all the buttons at the back and I hit this one button and suddenly I hear the fan rev up real quick and then just bang, the whole thing explodes in my face, like sparks, smoke, bits of metal and plastic flying all into my face. And um, I realized years later what I'd done is I turned it from 240 volt down to 110 and it just fucking exploded. <laughs> but now every time I hear like a laptop fan <laughs> or like serum, too many serums and it starts to rev up, I, I have this like trauma trigger where I think the thing, like I just, just sort of pull. backing off. Yeah, I start backing off like my face. Away. It's so funny, man, because like that is a sound that happens all the time in my line of work. <laughs> it's like every day, like I'm in a festival, it's really hot and I hear that fan and I just have this like little jerk reaction. PTSD. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the new MacBooks are crazy for it as well like mm. they, they sound like they're going to take off yeah yeah that's oh, madness dude why is it you just constantly injure your feet um, anything else or you just honestly i think it's because i use them a lot you know like i'm out there getting in it and i think when you do that you're prone to like you know have more shit happen that's it i suppose you'd rather injure your feet than your back or something no i did that this year yeah <laughs> yeah i've been out of the water for six months wow. have you seen that scorpion i did no uh, I, I surfed, you know, like ship sterns. Yeah. So the the boys took me out there and um, I had a real go at it. It was like the fifth time I tried to surf it. And every other time I'd been either like sort of petrified about the idea of it. But then when I got out there, I was calm, but I was so careful, very careful wave selection. And usually only in the water for like 40 minutes, get three waves straight in just play it safe but this day i was like really going for it and it wasn't the biggest shippies conditions at all but it was like still like 10 footers coming through um and then like the biggest one of the day came and i didn't know but i was out of position and then i took off right above the step and i was like because i grew up in dy point in sydney and it's a real throwy one. Like it, you start on a dry rock that surges and then it throws you out. I used to book DY. Yeah, Similar did you? To North Point at um, Kawaramup yeah. down south. So, you know, like out at first rock. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it's so intricate and tricky and really on the book, you just, you actually want to get thrown through the barrel yep. to, to get speed, to get started. And I was like, I reckon I got this and I push over the lip just went hard into that step and I tried to stick the landing, but I went top to bottom like on a 10 footer and I landed on my face and my chest seeing stars immediately. And I was, and then I was like, Oh, I should let go of this board. Like I think I'm about to really cough it here. And then, um, 
just like relaxed. And then I just felt it grab me, lift me up real high, then bang, hit the reef. Um, took a minute to come up, but I was okay. And then my leash was like down to my wrist and I was like, I'm, I look up, there's another wave coming and I'm like, I either lose my board or I let this wave like destroy me. And I was like, kind of went for halfway between. I like missed out on my paddle time, grabbed the leash, slided up my arm, got like two quick strokes in. And then I did this technique that I've heard about. Um, if every year in an avalanche, you meant to like swim up the snow um, so that you don't get like buried in like the bottom of it. And I tried to do that into this wave and it kind of worked because there's these like two or three big boulders that like stick like as tall as a person out of the water at Shippies. And I was heading straight for them. And cause I like swam up the whitewash, like didn't even really duck dive. I just like went into it straight and, into and it. up. It like threw me over the boulders. And then, uh, and then I just ended up in the bay and was just getting pounded by like six foot whitewash. But I was like, Oh, I got my board. I've like, I could tell I like, no, at first I didn't think I'd done anything. I was like, I'm fine. But I remember my hips just like twisted when I had that first impact. And then as, as I like the shock wore off, I was like, Oh, I've pulled my groin a bit. Um, when I saw a doctor, they were like, Oh, you've hyperextended your stomach, pulled your groin, but like, it looks okay. Other than that. And no one realized for ages that I'd, I'd moved my pelvis out of place. So then my vertebrae locked up like in that, the, like the, the real arc, Bit, yeah, the, the lower section of your back. I was on a foam roller and when I got to those last two vertebrae, they were like stuck together. Oh. And I was like, oh, what's going on? And it just got worse and worse and worse over like five months. And um, you were getting a lot of flights and stuff in that Oh, dude, well. yeah. I did like not as many shows as usual this year because it's still like post-COVID settling in, but probably like 80 shows. I was in Europe for five weeks, just different city every two or three days. Like I was in pain every day and I had to finish – all the stuff for the album, like it was, it was, it was kind of nuts. Um, and then, yeah, it took like five months to realize, oh, your pelvis is just out of place. And I had this one person that saw me once and they put it back in and then I was like, oh, now I'm fine. <laughs> like a mad crack. Like, yeah, like it was about just working the legs until it was like loose enough. And then she literally just folded me one way, then folded me the other way. And I was like, oh, there it is. It's all back to normal now. It's the dream though. Yeah. That's what you want. Yeah. Man, that's nuts. Yeah. I did, um, I tore my ass eh, at uh, a wedge. Oh, yeah, Mandra wedge. How'd you tear your ass? First time I've been back in. Do you mean like ages. like like a flesh tear or like a muscle tear? Or I just a- went over mm. and because it's a it's a deceptively heavy wave. Oh, it's super heavy. Yeah, but yeah, it, looks, it doesn't look it when you're out there, especially when there's all those pro kids out there just yeah. smashing it. And I hadn't been out for ages, so me and Bradshaw from Street X and Jeremy Smith went out. Oh, sick. And um. Jeremy used to be pro. Bradshaw was a pretty good bodyboarder. I didn't be. Was Jeremy pro? I didn't know. Yeah, that. he won oh. the nationals though. What? Yeah, That's years sick. and years ago. Shout out Lab Six. Yeah, man. Jeremy's <laughs> dark horse. Jeremy's like yeah. a. Jeremy's got some got some medals, but he um, but yeah, I just went out there and Whitey was like, floating around like shooting and stuff. Mm. And I was just embarrassed because I'm done. I used to boog a lot when I was a kid mm. and like up until my sort of mid twenties, but then I probably didn't for 10 years. Yeah. Gotcha. And then I jumped in and, um, yeah, I just got thrown and it, as I was getting, as I was sort of bowling through the bottom, my ass cheek just caught, <laughs> like caught the bottom of the, like the sandbar. Oh, and the rip sideways. It, and I was just like, <gasps> like, this is like <laughs> such a confusing oh, feeling. I've got to watch out for that one. I've never thought Dude. to like, 
I always cover the head, but I never thought about squeezing <laughs> yeah, the, the, the glutes. Like, hands to the back of the head, or yeah, for some yeah. reason. I'm like, but yeah, it wasn't pleasant. And then getting out, because you know, getting out there is oh, a yeah. fucking nightmare. And I was like, all I cared about was just not ending up on kook slams. <laughs> <laughs> that's I'm the opposite. That's my dream. I want to get on <laughs> like do something so dumb, and then like oh. There it is. <laughs> the dream is solved. Because uh, I surf around California a lot, around all like uh, Laguna, where they have all this stupid backwash wave, Seal Beach, Newport Wedge. So where they've got the um, the piers that go out. Yeah. 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 The uh, that's probably well Huntington and Seal. There's heaps of piers all around all that area. But that's where all those gnarly like sort of close out shore break backwash waves mm-hmm. are. Yeah. Are you spending most of your time in California at the moment? Uh. Probably like a third of the year I was there this year. Yeah. Yeah, but still did a lot of traveling. Yeah. yeah. I was at, last time we spoke, you were saying you hadn't had a home for a minute. Yeah, I technically lived in LA this year, but I didn't like it that much. I, I just don't like staying still for too long. Um, unless, like, I think you should just go to places, make the most of it, and then get out. And anything more, you are a victim of your comforts. Man, we've spoke about this on here before. Yeah. I've, I've been feeling that hard. Yeah. Because you, you're surrounded and you're like, I'm so comfortable. And you you start looking at things like three rugs or a new couch and you're like, I don't want to make this prison cell any more comfortable than it already is. Yeah. I had that. It was such a weird dilemma for me of being so agile for so many years and not having stuff like that I had to worry about. I was like, opportunity comes up do you want to go here for like a month next week and i'll be like yeah right <laughs> you know doing, like, what, how many shows a year were you doing oh a lot like the most was like 250 fuck yeah and how many flights you reckon that comes with uh it was more like maybe 300 350 flights sort of vibe That's yeah wild. that is insane so it's yeah, yeah it equates to pretty much a flight a day yeah but sometimes two or three flights a day <laughs> how, how do you how do you manage that? Because it's always interested me. Like people, like we we're talking about Billie Eilish on this crazy run of like tour shows, like one constantly after the other, living mm. out of a bus. How do you like keep your mind and your body kind of active? Mm. And second part to that is like, how do you deal with having to have that much energy all the time and keep bringing that energy to all those shows? Have you, is it something you're conscious of? I think when you get when you get to like the bus tour level with the semi-trailer or the two buses on the tour level, it actually starts to get easier Um, because the the buses are kind of chill. Like in America, like flying for anyone who hasn't been there in America is one of the most excruciating experiences. Like it's not like here. You can't just like rock up <laughs> 30 minutes before and just walk through the metal detector real you quick. You yelled at all the time. It's like yeah. every single time that you bump into any um, TSA officer, they're just like, yeah, it's so intimidating. It's like, imagine a busy day at the international airport. If anyone's ever had that, that is every single day at every domestic flight you go through. And then the airport's a giant, like the Chicago one is like, I don't know, like a million people there a day or something. Like it's like ridiculous. Um, and yeah, it just, it ends up taking up most of your life is you just waiting in lines at the airport and walking to somewhere else in the airport 
waiting for the plane to take off at the airport. Like that's most of your life. So you just, that's why the buses are nice. Like you literally go to bed maybe at like 6am after everything's packed down, you've like winded down, whatever. And then you wake up at, I don't know, like two in the afternoon, you're at the new location. You go get a coffee, go get some food. I would set up a little studio in the back of the bus, make some music for a few hours, go for a run, um, go to a beach. If there was a beach near where we're at, sound check, come back, keep working in the studio, do the show, wind down, eat, repeat. So it's for this album, like I saw, like it's a congrats on the album, by the way. It's Thank you. The, and I know I was talking to you when you were writing it because you, you were back, you were in the yes, do studio doing shift work. Doing it in Villa de Shock One. Yeah, yeah. That's so <laughs> funny. That was such a cool thing to do. Yeah, man. And that, um, but you've got a ton of collabs on that, mm. a ton of features. So during that sort of touring schedule, I imagine, because I know that, that the, the writing phase a lot of the time is like, sort of curation of things that you've been working on and various bits and pieces. Mm. So during that period of playing and or say flying like minimum once a day, you were somehow fitting in mm. collabs. Cause I see you in the studio with people as well. You're not just doing online no, stem swaps. And- like even I just did this five, five week trip to Europe and I think I only actually stayed in a hotel um, on my own accord for like four nights out of that. Like, it, it, you know, I'd stay in there if it was a show night Um but then I was just staying with friends and other musicians and working in their studios, going to their local hangouts, going to their local nightclubs, going and seeing their local friends play and just really getting a ground level vibe of what's going on. I think it's such a, it's, it's, it's kind of like a smarter way to tour for me looking at all post COVID is like you develop all these really awesome communities and friends all around the world. And then you get invited into their spaces and they excite you, you excite them. It's like such a, harmonious like exchange um of creativity and friendship and it feels so much more effortless like it's not like i'll wake up here go do this go do that deal with this and then get uber over to the studio or whatever and then meet there and then do that and then come back it's just sort of like all happening in the one place all action no filler no in between and so I think collaborating is so important to understand the people you're working with and like get a feel for each other. And I think you get that when you live with each other for a little bit, you have these like hyper intense sort of like conversations and ideas and you, you, you do your morning routine together and then you're in sync. And then the second you get in the studio, you're just writing like, you know, brain tentacle in line perfectly. That works if you're like a positive person if you're if you're a prick that would just be you'd just be like hanging out with someone that's a fucking drag yeah and then you're like all right come on let's go to the studio write a banger but but my rule is like don't work with anyone you can't imagine being on a bus tour with for three months because mm-hmm. that's probably going to happen yeah, and, and like if you work with assholes i've worked with a couple of assholes but usually I work with really good people and you work with assholes you're kind of stuck with them for a cycle you know, and like you got to do press with them and you got to, and it's just like, oh, fuck this. Like, so I'm just always, I like vet people pretty hard, usually before I even get in the room with them. Cause sometimes you write a smash with someone and then after the session, you're like, oh, fuck that person. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then you're like, oh, now I'm like going to be tethered to them for the whole like rollout of this record. And I it, hope this does not And the music here. video and like features and we got to get on TV together. And, you know, it's just, but like, yeah. So I think it's, for me, it's always about, Working with people that you see eye to eye with. Yeah. How much do you think that, um, cause I, I followed your career pretty well. Mm. Like, and I was in, I was in that sort of SoundCloud 
blow up as yeah. well. And I saw people like you really career out of that and navigate. I think you did it because you were very definitively SoundCloud in the beginning with, mm. the, with the bootlegs and stuff. Yeah. And then it was like, it just like you, you navigated that better than almost anyone. And it looked very independent. I'm sure it wasn't completely independent, but mm. it looked that way. But seeing how many times that it looked like you got hamstrung or it looked like you got the legs cut out from under you. Mm. Like I know you were doing, were you an accountant? Yeah. So you had that career like down mm. and then you're like, I'm going to do music. Yeah. Which is obviously most people wouldn't, most people would stay 50, 50 at least, you know mm. what I mean? But you've, you committed to that mm. and then you've got that going and then you got your name got taken yeah, you got, yeah, you got yeah. sued for the name. I got sued for an old name I had in the early days. And that was still when I was like working a desk job, but then learning and doing bootlegs, like just sort of getting into all my production stuff, but then DJing around Australia a little bit. Um, that was like the real early, that was before SoundCloud even. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that happened. There's, there's always like, it, it happens like that though. There's just these fucking hurdles like everywhere and some of them are like giant you know some of them are extremely problematic and i think everyone eventually hits them and it's whether you work through them or you don't you know was yeah. there points in any of that like because oh, obviously you had the you switched to the mo instead stuff mm. and then when what's so not and you're obviously doing that with harley mm. and then i know that there was probably i'd heard that there was a period at least where it was like you f you were a little bit frozen in what you could do with tracks that ex that previously existed. I have to be really careful how I talk about it. Yep. There was definitely very frustrating moments for me where I was not allowed to do things that were very important for the project and sort of like uh, no brainers they needed to happen and they were sort of stopped and cut off. From, and they were ceasing your momentum for that project. Well, I won't say they because I can't no, say. No, sorry, I mean those, those, hur those hurdles. Were, those hurdles were ceasing the. the they were they were slowing down the. One million percent. There was hurdles and things put in front of me, t just for the sake of trying to freeze it up. Yeah, mm. yeah. And then was that about the time you banged out with um, RL Grime? Uh, I'd already done that one. Um, but for me, it was like, things are not nice for a lot of different reasons. And I just need to do as much as I can so that I can have my own bit of leverage and my own connection with people, you know, and like my own voice. So I just kept doing everything despite things being very, uh, unfriendly in certain, um, respects and, then just worked my way out of it. it took a long time to actually get out of it it was very complicated um and then once i finally was and able to put out music like just being able to put out music you know like that seems so basic a, a requirement of a music artist but for a long time there it just wasn't happening as it should and then the first thing i put out was the inner bloom remix and then, and then the next thing was like the, the songs from the Divide and Conquer EP and then Noisy did a remix of that. And then, you know, it all just like, I was like, oh, fucking freedom finally. And then like started to really have some of the, the best things ever that have happened for this project, which is really exciting. Dude, to come out with the inner bloom. Imagine if you wrote a track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Imagine if you were just like, man, I feel fucking like 
because coming from a place because i understand it because when especially during that soundcloud era you could you were so used to just being like i've got something i'm going to come up with my own sort of promotional thing i want to tour so you're just putting tracks out on there blogs were a big part of it hype machine all that yeah. sort of stuff so to be like wait i can't fucking release music would have been mental yeah it was shit it's like i'd explain it like this i was on this giant rocket ship and i could see where it was going and i was like i don't want to be a part of this and i jumped off and then i had to find my own or build my own rocket to get back up there and i did that and it was like quite a journey you know and it was quite a choice to make and i'm, I'm glad i made that choice because it was the the better choice for my life the better choice for my career and the better choice for my creative process do you ever sit there because I've had things where I've made choices in my life and I'm like, I will have moments sometimes when I'm by myself, like in bed and I'm like, thank fucking God I did that. Yeah. Because you think about where you would be if you hadn't made that decision and you're just like. I would probably be, I would probably be more successful, but have a really shit life. Yeah, right. That's what would have happened. That's where, that's where I could see it was going. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to go there. That's not important to me. And I suppose this, uh, you know, it, it, that immediate validation of that track being, I mean, that's a fucking huge song. <laughs> yeah, it did pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like such a, like we put that out underneath a single I was promoting, which was loan for the Divide and Conquer EP. Like it, we didn't even really push it. I just gave it to DJs and then everyone started playing and became like a really big moment. Yeah. And even that one even got like, the Triple J, uh, like, it was, like, somewhere in the middle of, like, the top 100 tracks of the decade. Yeah, dude. Yes, yeah, so like, it did really good. Yeah. I was in the clubs a lot at that point, and that was yeah. a big moment. There was a, You had a lot of big moments in that period, though. It's funny because I come from that background and, like, I, you know, like, I'm in that world. Mm. And Josh, we sort of had connected initially in, in that space, but you were not as connected to that. I was like, man friend chris is going to come on does what so not and he was like oh yeah i know what it is i'll i'll check it out and then <laughs> what'd you say before <laughs> oh it's just funny because like i'm terrible at like uh band names song names especially like mm. i just don't remember but i know tunes yeah yeah and i was looking through the wikipedia uh and i saw your track with our grime um tell me yeah yeah and man i played i was like that sounds familiar and then i played it and i was like oh <laughs> <laughs> that song yeah man, that was like the soundtrack to a summer like fucking eight yeah. years ago whatever the fuck you made it i remember that came out i think it was 2014 that came out a couple of months after i first got to america and it was the most played song at edc my first year in america that's so like yeah, it's pretty wild. You know, like yeah, looking back, I'm like, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> Dude, that was the biggest song for a couple of years. That was, I remember it was like that and um, Tonight, like the Hudson Mohawk. Mm. And yeah, that that whole sort of big room thumping um sort of horn sound stuff yeah yeah yeah. but it was a good time in music dude it was, that was great. a fun time in music it was when experimentation was winning yeah it was um yeah i i can sort of see what the problem is now and the difference is now i mean first off it was the beginning of something whereas now i haven't seen the beginning of things really take hold like they were and part of that i think is it was so freeform back then it wasn't this like orchestrated planned we need ingestion time you can't put out another song because we need six weeks to work this record like all that bs that happens now and exactly all that is like you get penalized 
for being spontaneous. You get penalized for being creative. You get penalized for sitting outside of the lanes that are allocated to grant you like a look. Whereas before it was the opposite. It was like, I'm going to, I made this thing today. I'm just going to do a little mix down tonight and then I'm going to upload it tomorrow with a graphic I found on the internet that was stolen and I just inverted the colors and then like a whole bunch of people would comment on it and then someone would rip that like on Zippy Share or whatever the hell we used to use <laughs> and then bootleg it and then have a version of it up like three days later and then someone would be playing that and someone would get it to Skrillex and then suddenly it's all around the world. Like that's what used to happen like every day. And it was amazing. That was like, mm. and that was the period that I came up in. I did yeah. like a remix, like a bootleg of Too Much by Sampha. Yeah. And it was the same thing. Like I remember I was vacuuming my house one day and I was like, it, it made it to number two on Hype Machine. And Sick. I remember just being like, Man, I used to just download some, you know, when you were DJing yeah, yeah. when you started, you'd like download the top 10 remixes off Hype Machine and then you'd yeah. just play them out and like you'd figure it out. So I was like, oh man, that's pretty fucking crazy that that happened. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, it started, it got played all over. It was like EDC and, and a few other things. And I, Twitter's, you know, Twitter's is not a thing here. So I had like six followers on Twitter or something. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, I was vacuuming my house in the middle of the day. And my phone just went fucking crazy. And it was like, what's this song? And then everyone was just like posting videos to it. It was, I think it was Adventure Club or someone that was, had played it. It was like a big part of the set. And I was like, oh, sick. I was like, that's fucking crazy. Cause I just yeah. did it in my living room on the couch. You know what I mean? Like, and then same thing, just quick bit of artwork up on SoundCloud, happy with a thousand plays. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. Then the ability for that to happen back then was just like astronomical. Like it was. Yeah. And it was exciting, you know what I mean? Yeah. I found the SoundCloud era, certainly independently, I found this, the, the um, Spotify, the, that crossover into Spotify. Yeah. Hugely hard to navigate and like pretty stifling. I was just like... Yeah, it was, it was a hard shift. Um, and I was lucky. It was a right about when I got new management and they were like, we should start moving things over because that is getting SoundCloud was getting blocked by the majors. Do you remember all that? Yeah, dude, everything was getting pulled down. Yeah. They, they were in, they were essentially, I think they even bought part of it, but then like didn't want it to work because it wasn't, it, you couldn't monetize it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's the same it was a war of the tech company. It was like so wild. Um, so yeah, just, and I mean, Spotify, like, it demands a different approach, you know, like it's not good for club music. Not at all. Like it doesn't cater to that. And it's, it's not catered to stepping outside the lanes. It's about being in the lanes and, you know, just by the function of a company like that, it's, we want things that aren't going to turn people away or like, rub them the wrong way so you know more straight down the line in the lane kind of music is what is chosen and pushed a little more you know do you think that's hampering the creative process oh 100 but i'm not I'm like personally i'm not gonna like speak out on it too much because they've also been quite supportive of my stuff probably as best they can be despite it not fitting into those lanes mm. you know like I don't feel like I've been hard done by by them because of like I don't feel too penalized by the, you know the, the 
the unusualness of some of the directions I'll go in like randomly, you know, like it's so you, you don't think it's influencing your writing process. I think if I'm being very frank and, and like honest with myself, it probably has influenced me a little bit, but I don't like that. And I definitely, if I notice that in myself, I'll work to undo that. Um, it's just, it's hard. Cause it's like, it's, it's like when radio was the big thing, right? It's just, you either make the stuff for the radio or you make something so undeniable the radio has to play it. And I'm always trying to do the latter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to write like Chop Suey? Like the, the yeah. EDM Chop Suey. <laughs> like weirdly like a song from, from my scene that did that to commercial radio around the world, I would say was DJ Snake's Turn Down For What. Mm-hmm. That was the song that had a dance music record with barely any lyrics with no chorus vocal on main stations globally all around the world. It was an instrumental drop chorus that all major radio stations were like, oh, yeah, we'll play this. That was one of the first times I think that happened. Maybe in history, like when was an instrumental chorus like on main radio stations like that you can remember maybe certain rock songs had that but i I can't i can't remember you know if you go how old are you now uh 33 now yeah so i'm 40 i remember growing up and sort of when i was finishing high school so when you were starting high school there was there was a lot of dance music at the forefront you know like rhythm is a dancer and like just weird um Mm -hmm. silence by um yeah i remember that one yeah yeah sick song and there was there was some stuff like that that was that was sort of coming through but it was yeah it was always vocally driven yeah people remembered the vocal yeah that was that was the only hook but with dj snake turned out for what people remembered the riff yeah that's crazy and then it was like it was like this door opened of oh we can do the chorus in the build-up and then the riff is the the action moment and we can get away with that now. So that was pretty exciting. You know, it's Major like... Major Laser Bieber after that, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's like a push and a pull of like someone breaks the mold and then everyone's let through the floodgate. Yeah. That's crazy because it's also crazy how late the US got into dance music. Oh, yeah. That's why we all got over there and did so well. Yeah. It's <laughs> because they were like three years behind. Like, what is this stuff? And like we've been listening to this stuff from Hudmo and Rusty in like Scotland for like five years and you guys are just working out Exactly. You know? I was in LA in 2009 um, mm. working for Dimmark Records just before Aoki like blew up. Yeah. Was when he was producing and stuff, but he, he wasn't, I don't think he had like tracks yet and it was like DJ AM and, and him and Cobra Snake, that whole era. Yeah. And I could see them fiddling around with the at the time it was only kind of career town that were doing that rave thing in la it was like yeah and it was um all 18 ups like um you know the 18 to 21 clubs yeah oh okay yeah and it was like proper rave scene like um you know wristbands with lights on them and stuff like that yes and i was like you guys ever heard of Stereosonic? (laughs) (laughs) you heard of ziz mate (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's fucking wild man 
Yeah. But those festivals over there look mental. Do you think it's still in that place? Do you think, because um, one thing I notice here, I do a lot of creative direction for music festivals here. Oh, sick. And one thing I notice is that they, on a lineup, rap, rap is what sells tickets on a lineup, but at the festival, this is in Australia, but at the, at the actual festival, it's, you know, yourself, R.L. Grime, like the Skrillex, DJ, DJ Snake, like, that's where the that's where everyone wants to be mm. you know what i mean like it's like i remember going and watching um tyler the creator who sold a shit ton of tickets for origin and people were watching that set and they were kind of lethargic because everyone's just in a field it's fucking boiling hot drugs have kicked in yeah and he's doing this kind of intricate um sort of performance art set and it was i loved that it was, it was sick but he wasn't getting that energy back from the crowd yeah and then yeah. rl grime comes on who feels like a footnote on a on a on a festival that has a multitude of of music it's like oh yeah i kind of expect that at a yeah. festival yeah the place goes absolutely fucking nuts yeah. the second he walks on stage and it's like that's what large those large gatherings of people i mean some of the biggest single gatherings of people in human history of music festivals mm. and that's what moves everyone mm. at the same time yeah and i feel like australia is like through the consumer through through the consumption of music and media i think everyone is like oh rap i've, I've got to go see you know rap music or i've got to go and see this r&b stuff but when they're there they actually really want to see the edm stuff because that's what those festivals kind of I don't know if it's just here, if they're kind of built on into your psyche in that mm. way. I think it's different in, I'd say it's different in other countries. Like for, for, for one thing, I'd say America is the home of rap, mm -hmm. you know? So like they get rap. Whereas here we're like, I say we're still learning about rap and we're not like just the difference over there. If you go to like the small local club where there's locals just getting up and freestyling or DJs playing unknown records or like the records that never break out of a city, but are the anthem to like millions of people in that city. I remember I did this one show in San Francisco in the Bay area with, um, with actually with RL and Diplo and Diplo's just dropping these songs. And I was like, I literally don't know a single song, a single word. And every person in this room is reciting the lyrics to every single, and I'm like, there's this whole culture that like, we maybe saw the hit of one of these guys from this whole scene. That managed to whole, make his way here, yeah. There's a whole scene here. And I, I think that plays into one thing of there's um, there's it, it, also the whole thing of rap is so often mixed in with drugs, maybe gang culture, criminal records, a tough upbringing. So it's hard to get them to Australia. We have really strict laws about like I put rappers on tour with me and couldn't get them in the country. It happens to festivals all the time. Visa issues, something not getting filled out in time. Do you see when you put those applications in? Because I was in yeah. a, I was working creative director for a festival and yeah. uh, they were trying to book Young Thug mm. and we printed out his criminal because when you apply for it, yeah. um, I think it's I think it comes from the FBI when you put the visa applications fit through they spit it back to Australia so that they can decide whether the person's going to come yeah. in. And we were printing it out on A4 pages and it went for, I'd say seriously it was 12 metres. Like it just kept going. So but in America they do weird <clears throat> things. Like they'll charge, you get caught in a car with a gun. Mm. There's like nine charges attached to that. Yeah. 
So, and they're all detailed mm. in all of them. So that I think comes back to why rap sells because in Australia, because it's kind of hard for it to actually happen. Mm. So people are like, I better go see this guy because I might never see him again. He might break a law back in America and never be allowed back here. I remember like, I think Tyler came a couple of times and he was banned from Australia mm. for a while, wasn't he? And banned mm. from the UK. He called yeah. Pauline Hanson a cunt or something. I can't remember what yeah. that was. And Tyler's done some wild <laughs> shit. Yeah. It's not wrong, but. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I think that's why it sells. It's like, oh, I better get in on this. Like, There's a voyeurism for it in Australia as well. I mean, you grew up in similar era to what we did trends were actually getting filtered from the east coast and then coming to us to perth for so long it was like happening in melbourne two years before and then it would get wow. here and then as soon as like fast internet came like culture just kind of suddenly became global yeah and the the voyeurism of like what you would normally just see was like hollywood movies and everyone would do like fake american accents and things like that there was so much so much separation mm. between the two worlds and then I think those walls got knocked down straight away. But black culture in America shares so little with Australia that there was this kind of like voyeuristic view of rap music being some sort of a completely foreign tale. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, so people were like, like it's, it's hard to relate and understand to a lot of what and like, like I lived in an African American household for the most part whenever I was over there, and just being around uh, my friend James and all his friends and like invited into the sessions and just the conversations that go on and just constantly the cycle of like James kind of created this awesome creative halfway house for everyone. So it's had all these artists and friends and local people and people from abroad coming through like murder beats used to stay there all the time. And like Thundercats brother, Jamil and like, I really understood how little I understood growing up in Australia and, and how like easy things are over here for us and all the like yeah the things that like i just sort of was like oh yeah that's how it happens and i was like oh no that's not how it happens it's, we're it's very crazy. lucky that it happens like that Dude, over here it's so crazy yeah. to think about like think about the drug culture here in i was growing up in i was growing up and like i think it's pretty fair to say none of us were like i would imagine that none of us were like fucking junkies or anything but everyone was involved in live dance me or dance music to some degree and it came with a certain amount of drugs think about how many times in australia you would not think anything about having two pills in your pocket mm. or being in a club with like a half a gram of cocaine or something like it might be on the in the back of your mind but in america like people are literally going to jail for that like yeah and if you're a black dude and you're just like walking down the street they're stopping they're stopping frisk laws and stuff like that like yeah there's a lot of really nasty historical stuff in america and like hey do you know about the the nicaragua situation unbelievable like that one is gnarly i used I to have not heard about this it's, oh, it's dude. there's a there's a few movies about it and stuff i used to go and um stay there all the time and like uh kind of like half not that i lived anywhere but i kind of lived out of there for a little bit because my friends had this insane studio right by the beach like in nicaragua yeah so I, I would just like, if I finished my shows for the weekend on the East Coast, I was like, I could fly back to LA, which takes five hours, or I could fly down to Nicaragua, which takes two hours, and, and, then, and then just surf and <laughs> live in the jungle and like go in the studio down there. So I used to do that a lot. Um, but yeah, I started to learn a lot about it, a lot of stuff and, and like that. So essentially, the US government could see there was a communist regime coming in to Nicaragua. They didn't like that. So they 
gave a bunch of weapons to the locals that were democratic to make sure they could overpower the other party. And they didn't have money, but they had shitloads of cocaine. So the American government traded weapons for cocaine. This is the CIA. It was a completely clover yeah. because Congress had actually <laughs> Congress had said you can't you can't fund the Nicar- the Nicaraguan Contras, which was the com- which was the, the people that were trying to overthrow. They were the regime that they were trying to put in. So like you can't fund them. So Congress said no, and they were like, "All right, so we can't give them money." And they so they started trading cocaine. So you heard of Freeway Ricky Ross? I remember the Contras now that you've mentioned. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Rick Ross, the the, the, prop, the proper Rick Ross, was yeah. he was in Watts, which is where crack started. And he didn't know it, but the CIA were actually giving him cocaine and the money that was being filtered back was to buy arms. Guns. And then that started the crack epidemic and then they brought in the war on drugs and put everyone in, de- in jail yeah. who was addicted to crack. Same president <laughs> as well. I've watched so much about it, dude. It's, it's gnarly. The guy that broke that story as well, have you seen that movie? Mm. Um, and he won the Pulitzer and then they removed it from him. He got like discredited and then he killed himself but he'd been shot twice in the head. <laughs> yeah. Dude, it's so dark. Like that... And if anything I've learned from... Just seeing things in my life and being in interesting places. That kind of shit happens everywhere, every day, all the time. And it's like no one even blinks an eyelid up, up the top. It's Man. just, that's just, it's, what's going on. It's crazy, right? Yeah, that's what's going you on. You calm down, bro, because you got to go back to America. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just reporting what I read on uh, Wikipedia. These are not my own opinions. Yeah, they're going to bring this podcast up. They, uh, <laughs> you know, when you go through and they're like, Coming to these room, These please. are things that I have read and I am probably misquoting. <laughs> but go and do your own research and see what you find. I'm surprised you even go through. They'd be like, you're in a Nicaragua? <laughs> Dude, they get like that. Oh, they do. Uh, where, like, I got, I got Russian visas and China visas and they're like, oh, what were you doing? I'm like, shows. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> the, oh, no, the best one. One time when they came into Russia. They're like, this, this uh, immigration lady just like stared, stared me head tilt, looking at me, looking at my documents. And then she just stamps it and just keeps staring at me and just says, welcome to Russia. Good luck. <laughs> that is bad. <laughs> yeah. was, that was my first time there, I think. And I was like, all right, let's see what this place is about. Dude, they need, they, she'd, be, she'd be drinking vodka later with her friends being like, I stared him down for a good like fucking 40 seconds. I remember the first time I went into America, I was going in, I was going in like to work, but I didn't have a visa like everyone. So I did the 90 days thing. Yeah. This was in 2009 and I got off the plane, come through and they'd said, they, they do all the questions, you know, like Mm. how long are you here for? I was like three months. And so it automatically red flag because they're like, oh yeah, they, they do not like that. And I was like, they're like, why are you for three months? Cause I'm allowed to be like, well, that's up to us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, what? It says I can be here for three months. So intimidating. Each officer has their own discretion to just ban you out of the country. They don't really need a reason. They're just like, I don't like the vibe of this guy. Fully. I had friends in um, hardcore bands because I was in that scene at the time and they go through touring and they're all fucking covered in tattoos you know what are you doing here and be, you could see the queue it was like because they'd all separate but you could fully just see these dudes and it'd yeah. be like i remember a, i think it was d's nuts got got caught and they all got held in detention in the airport at la and then they had to pay for their own flights home to be uh, deported 
But with mine, they yeah, they question me a bunch of stuff. It's like, how much money have you got? Where are you staying? All the standard stuff. Mm. And then, um, yeah, I managed to get through. He goes, he goes, how much money have you got? I said, I got 10 grand. And he was like, are you going to Vegas? I said, yeah. And he goes, go at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Fair play. Thank you. But that was back when you could go, like, I went to London for like a week and then flew back. And, you know, my British passport, you could just keep doing 90 days and everyone I met in LA was doing it. Yeah, go share. Everyone. Um, But, yeah, it's crazy times. It probably is a bit harder now, I imagine. Yeah, they're pretty nuts. Like, even when when Trump was in, they actually... They started digging deeper on people and then I started crossing the border and they're like asking extra questions and I, I heard that from a lot of people. They're like, like people people would go and get their information in Australia to take for their visa and then the US would find something that they didn't even have on record in Australia that had happened in Australia. Wow. And they're just like, where are they getting this? Yeah. <laughs> <I don't>, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like every time you click accept on Facebook terms and conditions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're just like, wow, they must have a really good AI system going on over there. Yeah, it's going to make travel interesting for you now. Yeah, I don't think I don't think any anything will cross over. I mean, the Japanese are notoriously uh, closed with their information, so <laughs> I'm hoping there isn't too. We much. started this podcast with him because um, he went to jail in Japan. Oh shit. And, uh, yeah, for just facing, facing seven years, but the first podcast, the first episode we did was so that he could tell that story. And then we ended up making a proper podcast, but yeah, they let him go. (laughs) Yeah. They can be a bit hectic over there. Yeah. So I found out that was my fifth or sixth time over there too. I should have definitely known better, but yeah. yeah, Interesting experience. I don't know if you're aware, but you get done for consumption of drugs in Japan, not for possession. So they piss test you and then they charge you with whatever is in your bloodstream. Do you know that one? Yes. I'm usually pretty careful, in, particularly in Asia. you got to be very careful. And I mean, the Middle East. There's some stuff like Thailand, definitely not. Singapore, definitely not. But mm-hmm. I think Japan in particular, because it's such a – it's kind of got like a Western vibe to it. Yeah. You feel comfortable there, whereas mm. you feel like in Bali or, or Singapore, for example, there, you, there is very – um, clear boundaries and you know what you should and shouldn't be doing but Japan it's just like I said it's like a um, if there's something for everyone there and you very much you quickly lose those inhibitions and you start making silly decisions yeah and that's kind of where I found myself you start making decisions <laughs> <laughs> hey man every other person that's listening to this has been to Japan and not to jail where's your favourite place to play that you've been so far everyone always asks that but it, it's not I don't know if there's a real answer to it because no. it just depends. Depends on the vibe. Yeah, like you can play a 200 head club and it's like that was one of the funnest sets I've ever had. Or you can play like a 10,000, 40,000 person festival, whatever it is, and same kind of thing, you know. And how does Australia compare, I suppose, like you've played some <coughs> massive shows like Coachella and some stuff that's just like mm. can't really comprehend. But As- how, how Australia does- compares. Yeah. Like for real, most artists – are ecstatic when they get to two hours because they know how nuts people like people go nuts over here compared to a lot of places people go hard over here it's not like that in some other countries they're a little more like delicate about it or they're a little more like uh i remember the first time i played in china they they would culturally they would like stand there and wait for some sort of breakdown and then they would clap (laughs) wow yeah like just Different cultures perceive it in different ways, behave like uh, I would say in China it was because dance music was a very new thing and they'd 
you know, not that they'd never heard it, but there, there wasn't like the the understanding of like, oh yeah, you get in a mosh pit, yeah. you throw your fists around and you don't care about anything and just do whatever you want. You know, like just throw your body about and like lose your mind. And mm-hmm. I, d- I don't know that that had like got there yet. It was when we, in India was similar, not necessarily for dance music, but like playing my kind of music there. I just remember watching people like just looking at each other, like, what do I do to this? I'm, I, I feel like this. And they start moving in a certain way. And then, it, you know, it was like infectious. And that catches on. Yeah. You know, like it was really cool to, to observe that in, in different countries all around the world. And, I don't know. I just, I love shocking people like that. And then it's almost like you watch this truly natural reaction to the unknown sort of unfolding and, and then unifying people in a way. It's very cool. You can tell that that influences you in the way that you write, because I can always hear that it's even for the beginning, like there is a nucleus there, there, mm. there is a basis. I always think this with, with electronic music, it's hard to keep a common thread with electronic music. It's quite easy with vocal driven music. If you were a singer or you were like um, a rapper because you can change the bed, but there's always that common thread running through, Mm. but you know, you've got, you definitely have songs that are across a spectrum of different BPMs and and things like that. And, and various different elements of, um, of different sort of genres of electronic music within them, but you do maintain that common thread. Mm. And I think, I, I think I'd heard you on another podcast. It was like the Cymatics one, which I thought that was a fucking really. Oh, I was on one back then, dude. It was a no, it was, <laughs> was a really. It was, a, it, was a, it was so. It was super honest, and I was like listening to it, being like, "This is fucking crazy." Mm. And it was, um, yeah. And you were kind of saying that when you go to, you know, you go to different places and you see what works, and you were kind of going to shows. I don't know if this was a conversation that we'd had or whether it was on there, but you would like you're almost analytically going to shows and going what's working here and watching the crowd and watching what's, what's happening. Mm. And as much as it's, it's, you've got like a, it's obviously like a deep creative connection to yourself. It's also like, what is the end user and how are they responding Mm. and how can I best serve them? Mm. Whereas a lot of music is fucking jerking off. You know what I mean? It's like, Mm. look at what I did. Like praise me. For me, it's, it's always like, how do I make the frenzy happen? How do I make the frenzy happen in a place that maybe doesn't even belong? Like that's what, that's what excites me is looking at the, like I've even had times where I've played different mixes of records and seen how, oh, if I mix it this way, they react here at this moment. If I mix it this way, they don't react at all. If I mix it this way, they react at this other moment. And it's like, wow, literally the levels of the focal point of like what sound is being, you know, put to the front can determine an entire response. Or like, is the sub tucked away or is it forward? Is this synth lead obnoxious or is it just sitting there as like a piece of the writing? Like it's pretty insane to understand the psychology of how it all impacts people. And you're getting that in real time as well. Yeah. Do you, are you fucking about when you're playing? I mean, obviously when it gets to, to the, the big sets with, with, you know, some, some form of live elements and large visuals and stuff, you must be relatively rigid, but when you're, out playing say on this tour for example mm. are you I'm, i mean i know that there's always a start middle and an end to some degree but are you mm. like i'm a fucking 
you know, halfway through a song, be like, I'm going to drop this in. I'm, I'm a rogue. It. I'm going to take it here. <laughs> Go rogue. Yeah. I'm a rogue, man. Like I, it's 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 a strength and some it's it's a weakness in a but only in this sense. Like if I was more formulaic, I would probably be a lot bigger. But that's not important to me. Yep. I'd rather like shock and excite and take a gamble on something really wild than do something premeditated that I know is just going to tick all the boxes. And I think that creates a career rather than a moment. It creates a genuine connection between Mm. you and the crowd because Mm. we were talking about this on a pod recently. It's like when you're DJing, even if you're producing, when you're DJing and you're playing like, you know, maybe a 50-50 or a 60-40 of like your stuff versus other people's stuff and bootlegs and various things. When you do go rogue, I feel like the crowd kind of fucking knows. They know like, it, man. Are you? Are you? And like, you're like, and even if you fuck it up, it's <laughs> endearing. Like it's like, yeah. you can kind of just be like, yo, fuck that. And everyone kind of laughs with you. And then you come back in with a, with a banger or something. But there is a connection that happens between, you know, the DJ or the performer and the crowd where there is a give and take. And it's like, yeah, I'm taking from you and I'm going to give back to you and we're going to try and go on this journey together. And mm. I think from an external standpoint sometimes maybe people that aren't involved in that wouldn't understand it but people that are i think you get people for such a short period of time you might get people for like two or three years maybe even 18 months of that period where they're just like mad into going to music festivals and that you you create that like josh was saying before that nostalgic moment where you hear a song and it takes you right back there Mm. and and during that time you're like Hey, welcome. Like I've been here for a while. I've seen mm. you guys come and go, but I'm going to let's take this fucking journey together. Mm. And I think it's a kind of a hysteria thing when you get enough people together, mm. there's like an energy and you're almost conducting that. If, if you can get it right, which mm. doesn't always fucking happen. Like you're conducting <laughs> that energy and it's on a, it's on a fucking knife's edge. Yeah. It's exciting, man. Um, I think that's what keeps people coming back as well as like, I've had people come up to me because I, I like hang out with people. I talk to people like at a fucking cafe or whatever. Like I'll sit with people I don't know that I've just met where I'm like just there for 20 minutes and like hang out and have a conversation. And sometimes people are like, dude, I've literally watched you like 10 times. I come to like 10 of your shows. And, you know, that must mean they've been coming to them for six, seven, eight years or something like that because I only play a city like once or twice a year max. And, um, and, a lot of the time there's people that have seen a lot of shows. One of the first things they'll say is I always appreciate that I haven't heard the same shit twice because some people come and they're literally rinsing the same set for like, you know, a whole year, two years, three years, sometimes more. And it's like, you're not even giving them a show then you're like going through the motion to take another booking fee, you know, like, and there is pain by numbers like that. I mean, it fucking works, as you said. It works, but it's like, it's not being an artist. It's being a commodity. Yeah, <laughs> you know? look, at, look at festival lineups. I mean, festival yeah. lineups have, you know, half a dozen acts, like reasonable festivals where half, half a dozen acts that can and have done in the past played pretty close to the same sets. You know what I mean? Like yeah. how many times you've been to a music festival and you're like, 
okay, this here comes this song and here comes mm. this song because you know what's working and what's happening at the time. It's like <clears throat> you do need to be able to craft your own sort of lane through that and create experience. The way, the way, because like one tricky thing for me is my songs are literally every spectrum of beach BPM, and I don't just like write in F or G because it like hits the hardest. And like just whatever I feel like that day, that's the key. You know, that's that's the the drone or the notes I'm sort of hanging around, and that's where the song's going to sit. So it means there's only so many ways I can mix all my own records. If I got a short 55 minute set and I've got a catalog of like 50 records, it's like, well, there's only so many ways I can put them all together. Um, but that's sometimes why I, I like make these condensed like mashups of a few tunes, like just a little bit of the vocal from this one song, the riff of this other song, but then it builds up into the drop of this new song or whatever it may be. And I think by over, constantly overhauling and like pointing back to something, but then pointing forward or to like either something new or something unreleased, it, it, it just like creates this great spectrum of excitement and nothing ever gets old. It just, it's just pointing to a reference point and then, and then pulling everybody into a new space. And I think that's one of the hard, the thing that's hard at the moment with the way socials are working. People are not following artists anymore and that's, fine that's you know their choice just the way i don't think it's really a behavior of them but more the way the algorithm is set up it's it's not like interesting i guess to follow an artist as it is interesting to follow other things or you you being fed differently and so forth so for me that's a way to be like hey this is what you maybe you know but this is where i'm at and this is where i'm going and people experience that when they come to the set and they experience that when they come to the show and that's the only place really now they can get it mm. yeah. but that's kind of like it kind of makes it more important right because you're like oh i have direct connection with you right now like you're i'm the focal point mm. you're there's an expectation of me from you and i'm gonna try and deliver that yeah i think that yeah, the social media thing, it must be it must be tough because I know that you need to, like you come up with a lot of creative marketing angles and stuff for, mm. you, for your stuff, the stuff that you're doing with Oliver Tree and things like that, for example. I think there is a certain game that obviously needs to be played when you're trying to get a record out. Mm. But at the end of the day, you're like, you're really saying like, listen to it. You, yeah. You listen to it, it's, it's pretty fucking good. Like, I can't really, there's not that many different ways I can tell you to listen to it. Yeah. And then it's like, and then come to a show because it will probably give more context to what you're listening to. It's, it's always nice when like, some people get infuriated with this, but when I post my own song and everyone's like, or a bunch of people are commenting, what's that? Where? And I'm like, I dropped that like six months ago. Like it was part of a whole album campaign, but it's nice that you finally heard it. You yeah, know? yeah. And it's not your fault that you had it, you know? How do you feel about that as far as things being like getting missed? You know what I mean? It's frustrating maybe because that never used to happen. It was like, if you followed someone, you heard what they were doing. And it's not the people that have changed that. It's the system that's changed that. So, I mean, you watch these platforms, like they get these like representatives. They come and talk to your teams. Like we want to, we want to help you learn how to use this platform and get you started and push you up a little bit. And then you go get in there, you bring all your fans to it, all your people that follow you. And then they start stifling your reach. They cut you back. It goes to one tenth of what it was. It goes to one hundredth of what it was. And then usually when it gets to that point, the platform starts to collapse because everybody's so sick of it because it's so corporate anyway. And it's like, wow, really? We just, we as the artists bring 
the cool and the exciting and the fandom into these spaces and then they kind of profit off us and then like cut, cut our ability to talk to the people that came there for us. And then the only way we can connect with people again is if we move to the new one early and then get all those perks. And that like it's, it's a pretty dark cycle, you know? I think it is, man. I think it, the, the music industry, you know, if you read books about the music industry in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it was fucking horrible. Mm. And then it just really felt like there was a period in like, well, we were winning. Dude, and we were winning. We had it so good. With SoundCloud, MySpace, hype, Dude, it was hype machine. Fun. It was the first time the artists were free and popularity was decided by what people actually wanted. It was fully democratized. Yeah, it was. And they they and lost blogs, control. Blogs were like kids that loved music that would email you and be like, Dude, I love this. Can we write about it? Like, and And then within like a fucking 18 months, it was like, if you know this is how much it costs to get a fe- to feature a song on this on yeah. this thing and, and stuff and you're like oh you saw it come and go i remember like 2008 electro was just the yeah fuck, dude it was such a good time that scene was sick it was so that's, much fun that's dude. like when i turned 18 that sort of era yep and you started djing then because i was playing i was like in a band playing drums and I, I, my favorite band was at the drive-in like that was kind of my dude, scene i got a fucking mm-hmm. at the drive-in tattoo oh like sick it's my first, that's my i played in bands like that there you go and then i heard i went to the big day out when i was 17 i jumped the fence didn't have enough money went in and i went to the boiler room and i pretty much stayed there all day and i heard for the first time this is a fucking good lineup. I heard Justice, like before they even put out their first album, um, The Presets, who I did know a little bit about but never seen live, Ajax, who was the most important DJ, I think, to ever come out of this country. Absolutely. Uh, and Solax. And I saw all of that. That was my first experience of um electronic music at a festival my first festival and you realized it was punk music yeah and i was like i remember my thought process was before i didn't really like dance music i was like ah they're not really doing it live and blah 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 and then my thoughts when i heard justice in particular i was like oh i didn't know you could do that and you could never do that live you need to go and craft that and understand how to make that and those sounds excited me so much i was like now, fuck this stupid, narrow-minded mentality. Everything has to be live or it's not good. Like, you can't do that live. And I want to learn how to do that because that sounds way better than live. And that, that was it. That was my ticket from rock to dance. So, fuck, music festivals are so important, man. Yeah. That was a big, big day out, but especially, like, mm. what an institution. I remember seeing Prodigy. It was, like, the first. Sick. Went for Offspring, left with Prodigy. Sick. How good's that? Dude, so good. But it was Offspring Smash, so it was, like... It was sick. Like yeah. I was having a good time. I was super young. Yeah. But yeah, seeing acts like that and being introduced to, to that sort of stuff. It's so insane, man. Like, I mean, the chances of you not walking in there, not getting in, getting caught, jumping over the fence and stuff like yeah. that. Like it's a pretty good origin story, you know? Yeah. And like, uh, just what you said there, like you, you don't know about it. You got to go just be there and you happen to see it is something I'm realizing post COVID is, our entire community just stopped like dance music stopped there was no festivals no shows no culture we're calling them now like rave groms is like all these shows where it's like oh they don't know how to like behave they don't know how to 
respect spaces. They don't know how to do their drugs if that's what they're choosing to do. They don't know how to like control their intoxication. They don't like all of this different stuff. I don't know how to be a community in that space. Yeah, they haven't been like coached into it or like someone hasn't pulled them aside. Like, hey, don't do that, man. That's not cool. Like just yeah. chill and like be more like this. And it's someone they look up to from the scene and then they actually respect them and listen to it. And it's, so it's like a bit of a reset. There's a lot of learning that's going on. Um, and one of the things I noticed when I was in Europe this year, I would do a hard ticket show, right? And I would do a soft ticket show. And for people, I don't know who listen, don't know the difference. Like the hard ticket show is, it's not like a club that has like people that just go to the club. It's like, this is a venue. You're an artist. It's just people that want to come see you. That's it. And I saw how big the soft ticket shows had become compared to the hard ticket shows and how much more hyped the soft ticket shows were. And it was this big eye opener for me. I'm like, all right, so I've been doing this for a while. COVID happened. A lot of people had kids. A lot of people got dogs. A lot of people moved out of the cities. Like it's a very different landscape now. The scene didn't exist. There's now these kids that are like raving for their first year and they're like 20 or 21 or in America, they're 23. They've never even been to concerts. And they have to learn about it. They don't know what's cool. They don't know what's possible. And I saw when I played at like the local cool venue in the whatever city, all the cool kids are there and they're so open. They're so excited. Like it felt like the very initial days of this whole scene where I'm just like, I love all these records. I know they're killers. I know they smash. They've like, some of them are really old, rare bootlegs, whatever. Some of them are unreleased songs. I know they just smash a room. And I would play them and sure enough, these kids are just like looking around like, what is going on? What is this? Like, cause I, as well, like my set, it's not like I'm sitting in one genre. I'm like going across every tempo and every spectrum from like hard style drum and bass, like halftime trap music, like whatever it is. And I'm just watching these kids, like young kids, just like looking around, like, what is this? What is going on? And for me, that was one of the freshest and most exciting things I think I've noticed post COVID is how much real and raw excitement there is going on right now out in our scene. And it's kind of responsibility in it, right? Because you're like, you're, you're aware that you walked in and saw justice and saw the presets and mm. saw Ajax. Like those, those are fucking moments that change people's lives. And like potentially right now there'll be someone in the future that will be like, yeah, I was at this fucking what's so not show and you played you know like a throwback shazam did and then i went and fucking wrote the biggest record in the world like the funniest one was um because i came from like hardcore scene mm. parkway drive yeah um i watched an interview with kashi 69 no way and takashi 69 <laughs> a parkway fan didn't like rap music yeah but his older brother loved parkway drive so That's his so rapping sick. style comes from listening to winston <laughs> how fucking weird is that That's so sick that's cool, man. It's mental. That shit so happens. You yeah, and, and they would just surf groms from Byron Bay. So yeah. it's like, you never know what's going to, what the fuck, where, where things go, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's absolutely, it's absolutely insane. Just one quickly with, with the commodification that you were talking about before, you know, mm. artists being kind of railroaded. Are you excited about the future? Of music or of? Just of, of, I suppose the way it's packaged, the way it's, it's uh, marketed. Um, are you excited about it? Do you still see that there is freedom for you to, to do your own thing and be successful? Or are you feeling pressure from, from that side of the business? 
I think currently we are in one of the most restricted periods I've been a part of. It is not nice right now. Things that are great don't necessarily work. People that have been in charge of taking care of aspects of the back end of the work no longer know how to make things work, no longer know what's going on, no longer know how to connect it. It's very, very tricky. It's very rogue and very volatile. I'll say even the the climate currently of pop culture is not about new, it's about old. Nostalgia is like the thing that is winning and recycling is the thing that is winning. Making something new is very hard to actually make work right now. So, yeah, it's tricky. Mm. And it's like, so for me, the future is hopeful because I don't think <laughs> from the way and the possibility of what is there, I don't think it gets much harder than right now. Like there's going to be something big that collapses that opens the door to some new things. I think it was tough for a lot of artists that TikTok became very popular when we were all off cycle, it's like we weren't a part of the game. And then we started well behind everybody else because our biggest assets were not in existence. So I think time will point back towards what we are all good at at our core or something will pop up. There's so much, like people are smart, young people in particular, they're smart. They like, like kids now I'm hearing like friends that are high school teachers and stuff, they're like, kids think discord is lame. Like they're not even using that. And I'm like, I only started using that like just recently to talk to my friends on COD, you know, like, <laughs> like they're smart. They know. And I remember another key point, like not that I don't like hang out with kids anymore. Cause I'm like, I'm an older person who's been like doing this for a long time. But when Pokemon go came out, everyone gets to these little hotspots and it was always like the high school kid that knew more than, or the, even the primary school kid that knew more than anyone and was like, no, 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 you got to throw the Pokeball like this and like come over to this tree here. This is where this one pops up, pops up in like 13 minutes. And like, you know, cause they're all just in there. Like it's just a hyper connected community of, people just sharing information and then building on top of that. And I think as, as we go through life, we get a little more exiled. Our, our, our sphere gets a little smaller. We, we choose the people we want to be in our sphere because we want to have nicer lives. And that often cuts a lot of people out. Whereas I think kids, they don't know where they are yet. So they're just keeping a lot of things around. It's just such a bigger ecosystem. Mm. And they're born into this digital generation where I mean, yeah. we've spoke about it on here before, but where we were definitely, um, you know the guinea pigs of the of that kind of digital generation in a lot mm. of ways so they were figuring out as much about us as we were about them in, in like a give and take aspect as far as like tech companies and and culture went now kids are growing up in that mm. like and i was talking to someone the other day about how much certainly i'd grown up and everything was about authenticity like there was this fucking thing in the back of your head where it was like this is cool because it's real Mm. And um, I'd heard someone on a podcast say the other day that they were they were talking to someone that was younger and and they were saying, oh, yeah, this is, it, I don't know, it's like this TikTok stuff, it feels inauthentic. Mm. And the, the kid was just like, what? Who cares? Mm. And it was such a profound thing to hear someone say. It was like, yeah, we know this isn't real. Yeah. But it's entertaining. Yeah. And as soon as you take that concept in, it changes the whole way that you look at any of this. Like they're completely aware that social media is fake. 
but it's entertaining. It's more entertaining than watching Netflix and waiting for another fucking series to come out two years later. Mm. So the way that they're interacting and the way that they're viewing the world, because they're sponges, because they're children and they grow up, they're suddenly navigating their complete reality is within the realm of what we are considering to be foreign Mm. or like having to feel like we need to somehow take part in. Mm. I think it'd be tough being, I certainly found it tough when I, when I was putting music out and signing deals and stuff like that, where it was like, Oh, are you on TikTok? Are you doing this and that? And I was like, there was a natural resistance towards it. Mm. And it's like, Oh, you have to play the game in order to exist in this world now. And you're like, oh, I don't fucking want to. Yeah. But I think that there is like, there is a beauty in just accepting that that is the way it is and finding a way to enjoy it. Yeah. I, I definitely had that. Like I was pretty resistant to it. Uh, and then I started using it and I got pretty good at it. I went from like, like 3000 followers, like nothing to like 60 or 70,000 in like a uh, half a year or something, which I was pretty happy with. Cause I, at first I was like, I literally don't even understand like how to be on this app, mm. how to like, edit clips how to how to speak like it's just a whole different format They're talking to the camera yeah like lo- one of the big realizations was me is like you need to start with the answer right mm-hmm. so like usually you do a whole video people people are watching they don't know you and they don't follow you which is the opposite to what social media we had it was like i follow you i know you i'm gonna see you and get excited and then listen to what you have to say and then get to the point right at the end. I'm going to wait all the way to the end. But then TikTok is the opposite. It's like, they don't know who you are. You need to start with the, with the candy and like tell them something or show them something and then talk about the story of how you got there. And then they'll follow you. And then they'll probably never see anything you do again. Uh, <laughs> like, sorry, yeah, it's yeah, like, it's the opposite. <laughs> so like it, when you realize that, it's like, oh, okay. I just need to reverse everything. And then it was like a lot easier, but also with TikTok, I treated it like it was stupid. I was like, I'm just going to do the opposite of everything that is actually true and confuse everybody and just like make all this content that is, that doesn't make sense. And then the ones that get clued onto it, enjoy it too, and start like feeding the fire, like with everybody else in the comments. And it worked like, I don't know if you've seen that magpie video I did. Like I did this one, it got like 3 million views or some shit. I literally was just watching the surf and then all these magpies like flew on the fence next to me. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of cool. Usually they're pretty vicious, but I, I'd actually been like learning to talk to magpies and like do their whistle. And I started doing it to them and then just like filmed it, made this stupid little video and then just said, um, something about like, you know, my life is in danger. You'd understand if you're Australian and then just pan the camera from me whistling funny around to these like four magpies, like twisting their heads at me. And they like, it just got a comment. Like I knew exactly what's going on. One, it wasn't spring. So they weren't going to come after me. It was fine. Two, I'd actually been enjoying, like I'd heard they're really smart and they recognize people. And the reason they attack you is if they don't recognize your face or you have a pet that's attacked them once and they remember it. So I was like really into it. And then I just played off like my understanding of them and what was going on and then what people's perception of is them. And then everybody jumped into the game. They got in the comments, all these Americans are like, he has an Australian accent. That means it's broken outside of Australia. That means it's an important video. We need to work out what's going on here. <laughs> and really I just have an American phone with an American SIM card. So I'm on American TikTok, which is different to what Australians see. Jeez. So like all the, I know all this stuff yeah. and I'm just feeding in and it's like a game. It's kind of fun. Yeah, because then you're approaching it 
Yeah, and you're not approaching it from like a place of being like, I need to be my authentic self on here. No, I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to be what this app is. Yeah, yeah. Like that's that's what it's calling for. And then every now and again, I'll get like a banger that's like got great connectivity and I've managed to like sneak my song in somewhere. Like I did this one about, uh, you know, Imanu. Hmm. Like we were at our friend's house in LA and he's Dutch and Holland is like very flat. And LA is very hilly and he was in sandals and he was like struggling to walk down this driveway. And he was talking to me earlier about TikTok. And I was like, don't worry, Jono, I've got your first TikTok <laughs> right here. And I just start filming him like struggling to get down this steep driveway and made up this story about my friend from Holland has never seen a hill in his life. <laughs> and, and like, it was kind of true, but I was just playing the game. And then that one got like, I don't know, a couple of million views. And then someone stitched it. An American guy was like, no, really, he's not lying. There is no hills in Holland. Look, I just went on Google Maps and like started showing this picture. It's like totally flat. That one got like 8 million views. And then like everyone's stitching it like, this is bullshit. He's, he's definitely seen a hill. And then all these Dutch people are like, no, there's actually no hills over here. Like he might have not seen a hill and he might have really been scared of like walking down that driveway. That's fucking amazing. Yeah. And I just, we had a brand new song uh, that was on his album, Pillow Talk. And I just put that in the background. And then all these videos with tens of millions of views now have that song in the background. Then the song becomes familiar and people go and hunt for it, Shazam, I wonder what it is, and that's how you make it work. It's crazy. I mean, it's, it's the one that I'm... you got to fight to not be cynical as you get older because you're like, yeah. you don't feel old, but you're like, oh, shit. Things happen, like TikTok happens, and you're like, it's fucking stupid. Yeah. And you're like, oh, hang on. This is the same way that like my parents felt about you know, culture when I was 16 years old. Or when old. we were on MySpace and Facebook came out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, I've it's the first one that I've not got on. Yeah. And there's no real reason for me. I mean, I'm a- Well, TikTok is one of the first ones that has, it's 90% of observers, not users and participators. Um, whereas most of the other ones, everyone participates in some form. But this is the first one that's an observer platform. Yeah. So it is a, like a different style. Um I, I approached it like I'm going to go about my life and not stress on it too much. And if I see something that as like almost like a childlike perspective of it is entertaining or stupid, like everyday things that are like, that's actually really funny that we do that. And we think that's normal. Like I was went to watch Dylan Alcott play in the final and I was like, damn, the motions these ball boys do is like <laughs> hilarious. And then I just got like a Pokemon like voiceover of Ash, like throwing Pokeballs and like the way they do their stance. Again, it's like millions of views on this video, like just making there at the tennis, not taking much out of my day, like maybe 20 minutes to just go screen record this stupid Pokemon scene and then just pair it up with these guys throwing balls like while I'm watching the tennis. It should be validating as well because you're like, oh, my fucking weird brain is, is connected. <laughs> well, yeah, it's all like... I'm looking at it like a, like a creative, you know, and I'm like, Hey, that's kind of dumb that we do that. Or that's kind of funny. Or like, if you didn't know anything about tennis, this would look absurd. Yeah. I think it's interesting what you were saying before about when you, um, that this period maybe have potentially been the hardest time to be, you know, if, if you can survive this period, then you, you're hopeful for the future. Yeah. I think that that's like, there's an interesting thing at the moment where AI art is coming in mm. super hard and I'm a, graphic designer creative director so i was like you look at it and you're there's obviously the thing of everyone going oh this is going to be it's going to change the industry and everyone's going to be out of work and stuff and it's like no that 
being a being a creative like being whether it's a, a curator or a creator or or anything that the tools are going to constantly change and the and the ways that like the avenues to be able to reach people and speak to an audience are always going to change but you've been navigating that since the beginning i've been mm-hmm. navigating that since the beginning like you need to kind of be confident in your ability to be a creative person regardless of the tools that are around you or the ways that it is to speak to someone it's like yeah, i'm pretty sure i'm going to be able to figure this out you know what i mean like yeah. you, the music might you know spotify might take a fucking 90 90 degree turn it probably will um the way that people are consuming content and music might change completely but you're like i'm pretty sure i'll be able to fucking navigate this that's like okay the ai art thing right i would compare that to splice right yeah so back in the day you had to save up probably most of the profit you made that week from working a daily job, paying all your bills to buy one sample pack, which had a one minute demo that showcased some of the stuff that is in it. It's like a gambling on, Oh, I might get a lucky dip in this little sample pack. Right. And then suddenly for like 0.001 of a cent, you can download, I don't know, noisy as race base and then open it in serum as a patch and then reverse engineer it. Like you couldn't do that. You had to literally bump into someone like in the street and then be willing to share with you something that took them 10 years to create to ever know what was going on there. Absolutely. Like it's, it's, it's a similar sort of thing to that. Like I I think of how different and like, when you made music, you used to have to make every single sound and then sampling like royalty free sampling became a thing. Like it's just an evolution of everything. Now we can just make better and like more refined stuff a lot faster. Like that's really it, you but know? It's not, yeah. And it's, it, but it still comes down to the person that's in charge of it. It's not, it's like yeah. the person that's inputting essentially. I mean, uh, the way that you interface with whatever the technology is, is what, the human being at the end appreciates it's not Mm. the technology acting by itself and also like uh someone said this to me when that ai conversation came up they go well isn't that ai just doing what we do like we look at everybody's stuff and imagine what it would be like or subjectively put that in our brain as a possibility and then that comes forth from us when we're creating it like it's just doing it better you know (laughs) like that's it it's doing what we do like like it's like you hit a button it's make a song like skrillex and ai has studied all the skrillex songs and it's like well that's pretty close or pretty good or pretty interesting but it's like well that's kind of what we've all done you know like the thing is i think anyone can aim anyone can aim for a seat at the table you know what i mean like especially when it comes to music like if you're a half intelligent person you could probably if you dedicated a couple of years you could probably get on festival <laughs> you know what i mean like you could probably make Easily. a song that sounds just like whatever's popular at the time and if you time it right and if you fucking analyze everything you can put yourself at the table just for a second and there's a million people that come and go from that table yeah but then particularly if your parents have money Hundred percent. That many people have come across like that. Like, how did you? Oh, (laughs) Um, I was watching. I was. I follow a bunch of music producers because the only reason I had Twitter was when I was putting out music, and I was like, 
so I follow a bunch of fucking music producers that some of them are active still as music producers and others are just like talking about whatever the crypto fucking thing they're trying to pedal now. And the, um, one of the funny ones, I, I don't know if it's craze or the dude that the, the, um, kind of dubstepy dude that wears a mask. Uh, I can't think of his fucking name. Let's say it's Christ Marshmallow. Some... No, no, no. <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> Who's wait? Uh, who wears a mask in dubstep? Is it is it like an exciting dubstep project or is it like... was someone that was doing pretty well? Uh, there was wait. Does Ball Trap Music? What was the? What's oh yeah, yeah. That was more trap, but That's, that was um. It's Uzi. Uzi. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I follow him and like he trolls people and they don't realize he is. Yeah. And like this dude has put up a fucking Twitter of him in a st- the most ridiculous studio. It looks like fucking noisy studio. Like yeah. it's like wild. And the every piece of equipment that you can imagine. And he's like playing a cover of something, and he's fucking terrible. Like it's like a. It looks like it's like Pacific Palisades or something. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Uzi's like, bro, whose studio is that? <laughs> <laughs> And the guy's like, it's mine. Like, it's pretty cool, hey? And he's just like, you can see that he's not enough of a prick. Like, you, you knew exactly what he was saying. Like, yeah. he's like, tell me that's not your studio. Did it die? Yeah, this one died. It's probably been there. Ah, oh, fuck it. Just keep it on him. It's fine. Um, Yeah, the, the studio fucking... Yeah, you can tell that he's fucking... He wants to give him shit, but he's not about. He's not a mean enough person. To yeah, do yeah. It. And he's like, yeah, man, it's a really nice studio. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. We were talking about collaborations before, mm. and just for my own benefit, because I'm a massive fan. How did the Action Bronson one come about? Because that was quite early in the piece. Oh, that was that was one of the only times. It's ever been just like management set something up. Oh, really? That's one of the because I don't really do that, and it it kind of it was like an odd collaboration, both yeah at the time and looking back at it. Yeah, because of that reason, it wasn't like I knew a lot about Action Bronson, and it wasn't like Action knew a lot about me, and it wasn't like we got in there and just like clicked and yeah. like. It was kind of like the only time I've done, here's the bag, hit a verse. Gotcha. You know? Whereas it's very different with the mic thing. Like I did the, um, I did that version of uh, Just for Run the Jewels and yep. they fucking loved it. And then Mike wanted to do a verse. And then I flew to Atlanta, did a show with R.L. Grime, was there for a few days. Like, hey, guys, I'm in town. Do you want to do this verse? Met up with them, met up with his manager and, and did it. You know, it was really cool. And I think you get a better song when you do that. Yeah. But um, the the action thing was... T- and do you know action bodyboards now as yeah, well? Yeah, man. Which is like sick. full froths as well. Which is funny because like when it's through management, you don't... Sometimes you don't find that common thread. And do you want to... It's really crazy. Action Bronson was the first vocalist I ever worked with. Is that right? Like in person ever. So it was like my first ever like session. Yeah, you're coming into that. Was with Action Bronson. <laughs> like from, I think he was from Queens or something. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was like, I don't know anything about American culture. I don't, I know a little bit about Action Bronson. Like, but I'm just some Australian kid who doesn't even know anything really about rap at that point. Like 2010 or 11 or whatever yeah. it was. Like when the session actually happened. So yeah, it was like that was a learning curve for me of like, okay, you can go and get a really cool act on your song, but if you don't do it the right way, it's not going to feel like 
a song, you know, it's mm-hmm. not going to feel right. And I, I think that happened with that one, but I'd probably like hit it off with action now. Yeah. Like, but we just, we didn't, we didn't like, yeah, it was, it was just done through the teams, you yeah. know? So yeah. In, in the sense like, Oh, you made this part, he made this part. And then it gets stitched together sort of in isolation. There's no kind of like, like I remember through he, collaboration. We recorded it. He recorded it in Sydney when he was out here for one of his first tours. But like, it was just, it was so foreign to me, like everything about him. And it was like, he's like, I'm not going to record unless I get a bag of weed. And like, and I'm like, I don't even know where to get weed. Like it's Australia. Like it's, it's going to be terrible too. Like, You're going to see Darren somewhere. Yeah. You know, it's like, I was just like, I don't, I don't get this. Like, I don't know. But then when I got over to America for a few years, I'm like, Oh, this is so normal. Okay. You know, like this is like how you do a session. No shit. Yeah. So it was, yeah, that was, that was all so early in my career. Mm. Yeah. I was so hoping that, that was going to be the origin story of him bodyboarding. <laughs> yeah. That'd be tight. Dude, I didn't even know he was into it. But like if I did, this is the way if we had the artist connection, a human sort of connection on that on that level, like we could have like probably written something really funny about that. Oh, and then shit. I could have had like a, you know, could have gone surfing with him when I went over there for the first time. And it's just very different when, when you, when you premise it like a, a little differently. In fairness, I don't know whether he was back then. Cause that was when he was like a huge unit. Like, oh yeah. yeah. No, he wasn't dude. Cause yeah. even if you listen to his first Rogan interview, he kind of sucks. Mm. Like he was like, he was definitely trying to be a persona. And then you see him now, like the, the difference between his first and second at chalk and cheese, like, He's so comfortable in his own skin. He's not playing the role yeah, anymore. Yeah, he's just yeah. like, this is who I am. This is what I mean. I've loved watching his evolution. Mm. Yeah. Like the fuck, just like really anyone that's so passionate about certain things, like you can tell with him, it seems to me from the outside that he doesn't do anything that he isn't like a hundred percent invested in. So mm. he's got like an olive oil company, yeah, I've seen you that. know, like and yeah. you can tell like he's passionate about that shit and the, the, the work that he's doing around fitness and whatnot and the surfing and all of that sort of ties in. He's really carved out his own lane. I don't know whether it was like that when, when you guys linked up. I think. No, it was when he was like first blowing up mm. and he was on a wave and yeah, the different kind of mode. I think yeah. this is the benefit fat dudes have. Because they can go, if you get famous and you're fat, your whole career, like they can be like, the fame can kind of wear off and then you can have like the comeback story by losing weight. And everyone's like, oh, remember that fat artist? Look at him now. <laughs> like you get that second shot. That's he, hilarious. He got on the skinny redemption arc. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man, with the DMA's record, was that, um, are you friends with those guys? That was sick. That felt pretty organic. Yeah, 100%. Um, for some weird reason, they're... Again, for anyone I don't, who doesn't know them, there's such a big act here in Australia and um, over in UK and Europe, and I think that they do really well in America as well. Um, they, we'd never met, like in all our years, we'd never actually met. Are they Sydney or Melbourne? They're originally Sydney, Redfern. So even from the same city I was from, um, and like a lot of my really good friends were also really good friends with them, but we just never really crossed paths, never even like had a chance to say hello or whatever. And I met Johnny um, and we kind of like, we're like, oh yeah, we vibe like straight away. And then we were like, went and got some coffee, some food, had a little chat, started talking about like Chemical Brothers and Prodigy and, and they were wanting to be more in that world from some of their acoustic stuff. And then I was 
you know, I'm so fascinated by like songwriting and like, uh, instrumentation as much as I am about dance music. So it was like such a nice hybrid. I'd also been living with Dan Johns for like nine months at that point, uh, through COVID and was, you know, so, I don't know if you heard that record that we did stand him up. So I was so in that world, like very punk, very, um, doing everything live and then just smashing it through like saturators and stuff. Um, so it was cool. It was like a nice meeting point. Like I, be, from working with Dan, I had so much amazing understanding of like working with instruments and like his ideas and my ideas and, and how to get them to certain places, like rather than just being in the box dance guy, mm-hmm. like Dan had all these synths all through his house, all these different processes and stuff that he was showing me and talking to me through. And then I would go and tinker with them. And it was, yeah. So I sort of took that mentality, worked with Johnny. He wanted to do chemical brothers prodigy kind of stuff, but then was the DMAs. And then that was the record we got. And I, I loved it so much. And then of course got a shout out Jeff and Johnny's sidetrack boys. Like yeah, it's such a, monster remix i've also just a gent he did a sick one too different kind of style more like the american walk halftime sort of killer um but both of them like they just gave it this whole life like that that the echo and sidetrack one like i've dropped that everywhere in the world even places where they don't even blink an eye to drum and bass they don't care for and that everyone's just like Oh, oh, <laughs> you know, like it's like that kind of vibe. It's so sick, man. It's yeah. so funny because I, I fucking love the DMAs. Like I've, I was born in Manchester, so I'm like a yeah, sick. I've got like Brit pop roots, and the Oasis, the uh, the connection to Oasis is like super strong. Obviously, especially mm. if you look at their early videos, they're all just wearing like fucking <laughs> um, at uh, they're Stone all Island Parkers. No, nah, it's like uh, Umbro fucking oh. Parkers and stuff, <laughs> and it's and kicking a football around uh, in the streets of the city. It's amazing, but um, yeah, that Chemical Brothers where um, Noel Gallagher does the vocal on yeah, "You're the Devil in Me" and it liked, and I was like, that was what it reminded me of the first when it first Sick. opened, and I was like. Man, I hope they were just sitting around listening to Stone Roses and like it's just—it's such a fucking like it's a vocally it's a vocally driven record. It feels like a vocally driven record, and mm. then it kind of it it meets halfway. Mm. I was like, I was listening to the album on the way here actually, and I hadn't listened to that track for a few months, like because I was listening to it a lot when it came out, and I was like fuck, this is a good record. Like it is, you're isn't it? Sitting there just being like, oh, this is a good record. Yeah. Like, like uh, it's if that one. I don't think there was a a, a footstep wrong with it. Like, because and I and I don't mean that in an egotistical way. I mean like as musicians, we are like second guessing every little choice we make until we're like, okay, that's it, the master is done. And that was one of those ones where I was like, I don't think I did anything wrong. Like I don't hear it, and I'm like, oh, I should have done that better. I should have done this. Like, I'm just like, ah, oh, it just feels like a, like a. I couldn't have made it any better, you know. And it's not a vocal. It, it's. It's not the singer from the DMAs on a fucking what's so not track. Mm. It is like right fucking in the middle. It's yep. crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's I, dope. I, I'd say the the one song that we imagined we were watching the movie Train Spotting and the song we imagined playing was Born Slippy. That was the world we tried to encapsulate. Dude, that's fire. Yeah. That's nostalgia. That's like ultra nostalgia right there. Yeah, like, right? <laughs> I feel like we did it. Yeah, dude. It's a fire. It's so good. I remember when Jono and Jeff played that, the first time they played that out. And um, 
we were at Metro City. I think there was, they were playing some drum. I go to so many fucking drum and bass shows and mm. I've never been like a big drum and bass guy, but all my friends produce drum and bass. Yeah. And like, I go to those shows and I love them and I love like what they do. And they played that song and I was like, dude, that's a fucking banger. So like, it's very, very good what you've done. Cause they cut it out in the middle and then it's just kind of the vocal and it brings back up. I was like, Sick. you guys have really fucking nailed it. Yeah. And then I saw you on their Insta just like play, playing it everywhere. And yeah. also tagging him in. I think people don't understand like what a leg up that can be for an artist as well. Mm. Cause John and Jeff are fucking very, very talented and yeah. they're kind of getting their flowers now but they've been grinding at it for a long time. Yeah. And just having like another producer be like, Hey, here's the fucking stems, like go nuts, do it, do mm. a remix, you know, like I'll stand on the shoulders sort of thing. It's a, it's a fully good thing. Mm. Do you find that like you're trying to find people like that? Like, or do you just recognize it through, I mean, we're going out tonight for dinner and there's fucking 12 people. And from <laughs> what you were saying, like, I assume there's going to be like most ports that you go to, you're going to have like a group of people where you're like, I've, I've been here before. I've got friends. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's dude. I think that is the thing I missed the most during COVID. I think it's one of the best things about my life and my career is you get to go to some of the coolest places in the world and meet some of the coolest people in that town. And then they just become your friends. And then you guys just like meet up every six months or a year and you hang out and share stories and make music together. Like I couldn't ask for anything better. Yeah, that is the dream. man. You know, like that's my life. And then in between, I get to go and surf stupid waves. Like, it's, it's pretty That's good. pretty fucking good. And this is why I jumped off the rocket ship. <laughs> Dude, you, you, made a fucking, you made a wise move. Hey, yeah. I'm conscious of time. I think we got to get you out of here by seven. Just cool. quickly from me, we got a lot of people who listen to this who talk to us about like, <clears throat> I suppose, turning points in their lives. And you spoke before about uh, when you first started your music career being an accountant mm -hmm, and... Mm -hmm trying to manage being a desk jockey versus chasing what you love. What was, was there a point where you were like, okay, I'm going to put this aside and chase this. And like, what, what maybe was the catalyst that made you feel comfortable to be able to make that, that switch? Yeah, that's a good question. And I know exactly the moment. So I had, um, I got this one gig. It was a gig at the local pub, Monavale hotel near where I lived a few suburbs away. And they were like, we'll pay you 400 to 600 bucks to come and play like a, a seven hour set on the Thursday night. And the second I got that, I was like, I can quit my job. I was like, I'm getting paid more for this one gig once a week than I do for sitting at this desk for like, you know, most of the week. Mm. And if I can do that time trade, Sure, I'll be a little tired the next day and it, like doing a seven hour set every week is like a fucking slog. Like that's my ticket. That's just enough to get me by with, a, I had a, I was really grateful back then. I, I had a, a few friends in the industry that set me up with a couple of little gigs. Like I used to play at strike bowling. I used to play and that, that was just like a hundred, 150 bucks every Friday night. And then I would usually get have one like cool gig or two cool gigs a week as well. So there's like four or 500 bucks plus 150 plus, you know, only 50 or a hundred, which I'd get for the cool gig. Mm. But then that was enough. I was like, that's enough to get me by right now. So I don't need a job and I'm just going to, I've got one full night of work and then another like 
two nights of like a pretty chill half night of work. And then all the rest of the time I can write music. I can finish productions. I can study my craft. I can sit there and tinker with everything. So that, that was it. You know, I was just, as soon as I got that one gig, that was like just enough money that I was like, I don't have to deal with the bullshit of the grind. I'm out. I'm, I'm choosing this different life. Yeah. It's super interesting. How old were you? Uh, 23. Yeah. Fuck. That's a, you gotta be happy that you made that decision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like nothing, nothing in my childhood, nothing at all pointed me towards a creative career. Every single step of the way, I was deterred from being creative. Nobody saw what was going on with me from when I was a little kid. Like when I was like four years old, all the kids at recess in, in preschool would go out and play in the playground. I would go and build block towers. Like I would stay in the room by myself, just creating, building. You should have seen what I used to do with fucking Lego, dude. Like I would like design my own spacecrafts and like cities and like have all these games that would go on between them that were not on any instruction booklet and like... I was a creative like front to back and no one noticed like ever. I had to go and work it out myself and it wasn't until I was 23 I had the opportunity to like I, I can sustain this quest like financially to go and really tackle it properly. Were there people telling you not to do it? Yes. I tried to do textiles in uh as an elective in year 11 and my i won't tell you exactly what she said because it's really fucked up looking back at it but <laughs> she was like you don't want to do that because of the people that are in that industry <laughs> like, yeah like, and i was like uh, you know i just believe them i was like okay fine but i was trying to like be a designer <laughs> i did design and technology as a, an elective but then i was doing like engineering stuff like i for my my end of school project, I designed an artificial reef to protect the shoreline of Narrabeen, if you know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, <laughs> <laughs> so like I was always trying to like, I was like, oh, here's a giant fucking problem. How do you solve that? Okay, this would be how you'd go about it. I'd go and do all the research. I was kind of still doing that. So it's just like the problem is now how do you make the greatest music that heals, connects, and puts all people like feeling in a good place? Yeah. Dude, it's fucking fantastic. That's, it, that's fantastic. I wonder what it was. I wonder what was the, the sort of driving point. Did you have a champion? Like, did you have someone in your life that was like, yeah, fucking do it? No, it was just me. That's sick. Yeah. And that's what it took. As soon as I said it, that's when it happened. It like, was the scariest fucking thing I ever did. The hardest thing I ever did was like, it was like, I, I, there's this switch in the brain and it's like, people don't even know it's there. People don't even know how to push it. And I, I found a way to push it. And then it was just game on from then. Flicked. Yeah. Mm. I was like, never going back. I was like, I know where I need to go and what I need to be. I just need to do it. There's no going back. Fuck yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a liar. Dude, that's fucking... Fuck you. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably a great place to wrap. What do you Yeah, man. Sick. Absolutely. Hey, dude, thank you so much. No worries. I'm that's so awesome glad we can make chat. this work. Hell yeah. Man, new album, Anomaly. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Download that shit. Yeah. Listen to that shit. Sick. Thank you so much. Show, I'll show you tomorrow. I'll actually, oh, yeah. well, I'll probably I'll try and get this out tomorrow. Ice Cream Factory. Ice Cream Factory. Night. Sick. Yeah. Thanks so much, Chris. Appreciate you. No worries, guys. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Peace. That's sick.